Welcome all, Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today, we are joined by Sean Higby. Uh, Sean, welcome. Thanks, Max. Great to be with you. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I'm very excited to have you on as a guest. Uh, you have an awesome background. And for audience that don't know you, uh, for one, I, I can introduce you a little bit. Currently, you're at Lawrence Berkeley Labs or Lawrence Livermore Labs? Uh, Lawrence Livermore. That's right. That's right. So for audience that don't know uh, what Lawrence Livermore <laughs> Labs is um, and kind of very broadly what you've been up to in your career, do you mind sharing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, super broad career. Um, I've done everything from engineering and applied math and statistics. Uh, I hold a doctorate in remote sensing. And um, currently I lead a product development team basically where we focus on putting uh, machine learning systems uh, onto satellites. And so uh, I do the mathy end of uh, analytics and machine learning meets product development. Super, super applied stuff. Uh, for our audience that kind of don't know about your, your role, as I understand it, you're quite the product manager in some of the projects you've worked on or out of necessity, you've had to take on products manager type of roles, uh, even though, as most people should know, Lawrence Livermore Labs is a national laboratory uh, funded by the U.S. government. Um, there's not exactly products like a Facebook or a Google might have, but um, for audience that doesn't know, do you mind sharing a little bit about the types of product management uh, roles that you've had to take on? Yeah, yeah. So I can I can say a little bit. I, I uh, do have a lot of restrictions in terms of what I can talk about. Um, but uh, yeah, throughout my career, um, have worked on everything from uh, sensor development to algorithm de development. Uh, you know, things that might fly in an airborne system or a satellite-based system, and all the way up to some of the most complicated and expensive uh, remote sensing and reconnaissance systems that our nation has. And so a lot of these things, you know, I can't name them. They don't have uh, unclassified names, uh, don't sure, do interest sure. for them. And so, uh, but what I work on now is mostly uh, stuff that for the most part exists in, in the open. And um, I work on everything from the hardware development side, the software development side, uh, the embedded application side, as well as just the uh, physics and optical science piece. So it's cool in that um, throughout my career I've had a lot of different roles that have combined uh, really the, the project, the product, uh, system engineering, and system architecture sort of all in one. And so it's kind of been a, it's been a neat uh, intersection of all those different disciplines. For sure, for sure. So there's two very big topics that I'd, I'd really like to ask you about. Um, one, one of them is about your PhD which yeah. a number of our guests uh, on the show um, have either uh, recently finished a PhD or have been in industry uh, for a while. Um, I think you're our first guest who is in government as a government employee. Uh, but one of the things I thought would be fruitful to talk about is um, you got your PhD while in the armed forces. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was, uh, I was sponsored by the air force for, uh, an advanced academic degree, and so they they footed the bill for me to um, go get a PhD, and I had a full ride scholarship, which was an awesome opportunity, and um, and basically, you know, I did sort of a, an applied math meets um, remote sensing topic, and so basically, what I worked on is in lots of places in the world, they don't have the 
legal or regulatory infrastructure to monitor pollution. And so what I did is I designed uh, a nifty machine learning technique, basically uh, Bayesian model selection using a fast converging Markov chain Monte Carlo algorithm that I invented um, to allow at really long standoff ranges, either on a plane or on a satellite, that you could tell uh, what was going on in a factory basically by the pollution that was being released. And so for places in the world that don't have the same regulatory infrastructure as we do here, um, you know, it actually, you know, creating some enforcement mechanism and some awareness mechanism for what was going on in the environment. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I would say I'm sort of a technical expert in uh, industrial farts, if you will. And, uh, um, and so, yeah, yeah, eloquent so, way of putting it. <laughs> so that's my, uh, so that's my technical specialty is actually uh, algorithm design. And so I'm not a software engineer. I'm really an algorithm designer. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and then after, uh, after getting my PhD, uh, I owed five years back to the Air Force uh, in active duty service and got out of the military f- almost five years ago, four and change ago, mm-hmm. and uh, moved to California. I've been with the National Labs ever since. And um, yeah, and so also for me, you know, another... Uh, arc of my career has been going back to UC Berkeley and getting my MBA there and actually going on to, uh, to teach there part-time uh, and teaching analytics for them. So uh, for me, it's been really interesting going from being an engineer to a super deep you know, science math nerd uh, back to sort of organizational leadership uh, focused on technical organizations. Right on. I'm wondering if in your PhD program, you were working side by side with other PhD students or grad students who were not uh, backed by maybe the U.S. Navy to be doing their uh, graduate work. Sure. Uh, do you mind speaking to, for our audience that might be interested in getting into a PhD program, yeah. you know, wondering about financing options, yeah. what are some of the trade-offs that you observe between the route that you took and some of your peers in your graduate program? Yeah, yeah. So, so I was you know, super fortunate in that I had both sort of funding lined up uh, and employment afterwards. So that's the upside. You know, the downside is, you know, I, I owed five more years of military service. And so that's, that's a lot of your life to go lock up. Um, and also, you know, unlike other students uh, who can sort of, you know, finish their degrees whenever it wraps up, uh, we had a clock over our head. And so for us, we, the day we uh, started our PhD program, uh, we knew exactly the day that we had to leave and we had to go uh, start our service payback. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a lot of pressure that comes with that because uh, the military was going to suck you back in whether you were done with your degree or not. And there's, you know, people that go pull back in with their degree not finished and they never finish. Uh, you know, just life and work and those sorts of things happen. So, so I would say that's the set of risks on the path that I was on. For folks, I would say that are probably on a more traditional, typical path uh, maybe doing some teaching assistantship, uh, possibly research assistantship. You know, the good news is that in the sciences and in engineering, most grad students uh, are in general supported by uh, by the university, and a lot of times they'll get a tuition waiver and maybe even a small stipend. And so uh, it's it's enough to live on barely uh, for most students, and um, you know, in there, you know, they're they're sort of they're They've got a little bit of cash in their pockets and they're focusing on learning what they want to learn. But, you know, it is a little bit of conscription in its own way and that 
uh, you're not getting your piece of paper and leaving until your your advisor is is happy enough to let you go. So I think I think the national average for a PhD is somewhere around seven or eight years. And so, um, you know, I was fortunate to be supported and I got mine in just over three. Uh, so, but I also started with a master's degree. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of a trade. Um, but I would say, you know, certainly, you know, for anyone interested, definitely go get yourself a master's degree, see if you're excited about it. And if you want to pursue more education, uh, you know, there's a lot of avenues out there. Um, but I would say, you know, I, I would caution people against jumping both feet into a PhD program right away, unless, unless, you know, their field requires it or, you know, they just sort of absolutely know. I would say if there's any doubt in your mind, the the benefit to cost on a master's degree is fantastic. Mm-hmm. The benefit to cost on a PhD, eh, that's not always so so fantastic. And so I think it really it really depends on your field and uh, you know sort of the the person and and what you what you know about where you want to go. I I find your your use of conscription to describe uh, the the folks that were peers of yours in your PhD program to be accurate. The seven or eight <laughs> years is a long time to be. Yeah. Uh, at the whim of your advisor and their approval of you completing right. your, your dissertation. Yeah, and and I mean, just you know, I would say in terms of strategy, because I think uh, in in one of the topics I know we're going to get to here in a second is is about product development strategy. But um, you know, one one piece of advice I shared actually with uh, an intern that I had this summer, and he's he was interested because uh, working for us, we have some we have a few sponsored graduate degree programs as well, and he's like, oh, I was really excited about that. And I was like, well, you know, you could do that, but probably a better strategy is to just get your bachelor's degree. He's a computer science uh, undergrad and go get a first job, work there for 18 months and then go get a second job (laughs) and work there for 18 months. And by that point, you've got some money in the bank. You've learned a bunch of stuff. You know more about where you want to go. And then, oh, by the way, you know, compared to other people who are trying to get a sponsored fellowship in graduate school, those like, you know, year or two of work experience is going to be a real differentiator against your peers. And it means a lot. And, um, and oh, by the way, you know, uh, in terms of getting a future job, I'm, I, when I hire people onto my team, I am so much more concerned about their relevant work experience than I am their class and coursework experience. And so, um, so I guess I would I, I, I personally am a big proponent of go out there in the world and uh, go learn some real life skills and some real work skills. And um, yeah, that's, that's what I consistently recommend. You, you, you sort of answered my next question with that response, but uh, and this is a common uh, refrain that we've had on the show over a number of episodes. And I totally agree with you about the, the work experience aspect, but yeah. Uh, for audience that might be ignorant of why uh, hiring managers like yourself have such a preference for candidates with demonstrated work experience versus uh, either more schooling or only schooling, right. uh, do you mind do you mind giving some color to people about why why some work experience is so amazing uh, relative to no work experience? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so I would say. Um, yeah, I would say a couple things. First, first of all, is that there's a lot of just life skills that come along with it. You know, when you're in the academic world, 
you know, it doesn't matter what time you got out of bed. It doesn't matter really when you got stuff done. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's pretty comfortable in its own way. And, and I think I, I don't, you know, I've certainly spent a lot of time in school and I also, um, you know, want to be, want to be kind of frank and honest that, you know, let's be honest, you know, school is kind of pretend world. It's not real world, you know, in school, it doesn't matter if you get something done, you know, the, the worst case outcome is, you know, you might not get the grade you wanted, you know, whereas in like in the real world, you know, people's careers are on the line, you know, the financial success of your organization might be on the line. Um, you know, a sponsor or somebody, uh, that gave you money to go develop a product, you know, they, they might, you know, terminate your employment if you don't actually give them the outcome that they need. So, you know, just the, the fact that it's so much more real, I think is, is really the issue. And so, um, yeah, I, I would say that's, that's where my bias comes from. And, and also the result is so much more real. Um, you know, I think, I think in terms of differentiating how to think about undergraduate versus graduate versus professional experience, um, one of my early mentors had this great saying that he, he shared with me. Uh, and he said, um, you know, the difference between undergraduate and graduate work is that in grad school, the answer is not in the back of your book. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> and that's so true. Um, and understand that the difference between, um, graduate school and employment is that if you don't actually find a working answer in the real world, you know, you might not eat <laughs> and, and just, it, it matters more. And so the, you know, the stakes are higher. And, and I would say that's, that's, that's kind of a key difference. Fair enough. Fair enough. You, you mentioned, and I'd like to come back to this briefly is how um, you've been involved in inventing a few things uh, was, uh, was what you'd invented something patentable. And was that something that the, the armed forces backing your graduate uh, education uh, pushed you for, or is it something that you only only pursued after after the PhD? Yeah, so so I do have a a couple patentable inventions that I've worked on. Most of them have actually been in the algorithm space, and you know, really just as a uh, you know as a matter of circumstance, you know, working for the government, the government doesn't have the same incentives to patent uh ip as you know a commercial company would because you know unless it's something that a commercial company wants to steal and use you know in its product you know a lot of the things that you might develop for the military only have a market within the military so uh i have two pat two patentable algorithms that i've worked on one of which uh you know we filed the record of invention the government decided not to pursue it uh basically it was an algorithm to decide um for a certain type of spectral temporal sensor where basically uh, you separate the wavelengths of light of any point source and you follow its evolution in really fine time steps. And it was geared towards actually um, missile threat warning for aircraft. And so, you know, if you're the one flying the plane and somebody shoots a missile at you, you actually, you know, deeply care about the time based penalty for making a decision of should the warning bells go off or not. And mm -hmm. so uh, early in my career did a few years of work on that problem with a, with a team of folks and we came up with a novel algorithm. Um, and then uh, at the national labs, I came up with uh, 
basically a, an algorithmic strategy to, to help product design where uh, basically we took the mapping of a user requirement for an imaging and optical system and then that gets decomposed into all sorts of physical parameters things like the radius of curvature of say an optical surface the physical space between two optical surfaces and so on and so forth and all of these things um, if you think about you know a user says oh i want a certain signal to noise ratio of observing a certain event you know there's a gazillion physical measurements that go into that and how do you how do you do the system level optimization to figure out which of those actually matter, which ones don't matter, and how do you remap the physical parameter space onto a user driven mission scenario? Because if you can do that more efficiently than the next guy, there's a huge competitive advantage there. Because it just takes so much engineering labor to design one of these. If you can just make the design process like 10% more efficient, it's a huge, huge win. And so uh, in in my current role, one of the one of the key advancements that we've made is that uh, you know to field a new imaging payload to fly in space, typical development times for that are on the order of several years. And what we figured out is how to go through uh, all the way from user statement of need uh, through the enabling physics and radiometry and optical design, the mechanical packaging, uh, write a spec, write a statement of work, and get into procurement in as little as three weeks. And we've and we've repeated the process uh, twice so far. So uh, just the fact that we can compress the time scale of that engineering design process to develop new products uh, is is a huge innovation for us. And this algorithm is just uh, a piece of IP around how you might uh, mathematically do that and basically write the software that does it. Got it. Got it. So the the other topic that you and I share a common passion for that I want to ask you about is uh, how engineering as a field is driven by economics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to, to that and some of the some of the observations you've had in your career around that subject. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and this is, this is one of the things that in my, uh, you know, when I went back to go get my MBA, uh, I guess it was two and a half years ago, and, you know, the folks, uh, you know, many of the scientists and engineers around me were like, Sean, why the heck are you doing that? You know, you've already got all this education. <laughs> and, um, and I feel like this, this vignette I'm about to share is, is a great example of, of how just a little bit of that broad picture helps you be a better engineer. And so one of the things that we learned uh, at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley in my econ class was around this negotiation criteria called Pareto efficiency. And basically what it is, is, you know, imagine you're, you know, two companies in some sort of abstract negotiation and, you know, it it could be anything. Let's, let's say you're BMW and you're trying to buy, oh, I don't know, castings for, you know, a part that goes in your engine or something. And, you know, it might, it might be about cost, but, you know, if you, if you think about it, there's a lot of abstract things in there too, like, you know, your reputation in the marketplace, you know, it's not just about, you know, the dollars per pound of aluminum, you know, there might be issues around backwards compatibility, compatibility with tooling or something or some sort of infrastructure. And, and, you know, you, you could invent lots of criteria where 
you know, when two, two suppliers, two, two partners in a marketplace decide to meet up with one another and they're trying to negotiate the relationship of, you know, who's going to give a little of this, who's going to take a little of that. And this idea of Pareto efficiency is regardless of where you're at on this long list of things that might be important to either party, if there's any criteria, you can make the person across from you better off without making yourself any worse off. That means you are not at the Pareto efficient frontier. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea is you should be looking for ways uh, in, a, in a negotiation that you can offer the other person something that's actually constructive to them, that actually helps them and doesn't hurt you. And if you can do that, what you've done in this global optimization sense is you made the process better. You made it more economically efficient. And so, so in a typical you know, product development scenario, you know, there's, there's sort of four knobs in product development. There's, there's cost, there's schedule, there's performance, and there's risk. And so, you know, if you think about for any given development cycle, if I could reduce the cost without changing the schedule or the risk, I should do that. And if I could lower the risk without taking more time or consuming more money, I should do that. And so, so it's the strategy of uh, knowing whether or not you're at a global optimum for a project is using the criteria of Pareto efficiency. And so uh, as a manager and as someone that leads a team where I'm leading people doing product development, this is, this is the mantra and the metric that I give them on a daily basis is it doesn't matter if you yourself, you're crushing it. You know, that's great. You know, I want you to be crushing it. But what really matters is I want you to be looking to the person to your left and to your right and say, could I actually help them get to a better outcome without making myself any worse? And if you can do that, that scales, it's egalitarian, it creates this awesome team dynamic. And then in terms of the execution of a project, it's beautifully cost efficient. It, it finds and unlocks these new possibilities that you know you just stumbled into. You didn't even know it was there, but you're like, oh, like, you know, I might be able to help one of these facets without making it any worse somewhere else. And so, um, so yeah, so the idea of Pareto efficiency as a, as applied to product development is, is super important. And, and if you want, I can go into some of, you know, a little bit more of the detail around how, how you implement it and roll out a strategy, but at a high level, that's, that's the idea. One of the dimensions that of that, uh, Pareto efficiency you were describing that I find extremely interesting is schedule. Yeah. I think a huge amount of our audience are probably having firsthand experience with how there's different trade-offs to scheduling. And mm. one, of, one of the rules of thumb or, or one, of the, one of the recognized problems in engineering is the concept of the mythical man month. Yes, yes. And... Um, Maybe, I don't know if you have any specific stories off the top of your head, but uh, uh, does, does the mythical man month uh, arise in, in MBA studies? Uh, it's, it, I don't know if it's specific to engineering per se, but uh, I, let me briefly explain for audience that aren't familiar with it. The mythical man month 
refers to the myth that if you have one person working on a project that uh, has an expected schedule of four weeks, uh, adding a second person uh, does not magically increase the throughput of reaching your scheduled delivery by a power of two. In fact, it can sometimes have the inverse effect of making your schedule uh, take longer than expected, which is a, a very uh, unintuitive and perverse <laughs> effect of, of uh, making making it harder for for organizations to meet uh, engineering schedules uh, through human resources. Uh, but that being said, uh, Sean, do you have do you have any <laughs> any any firsthand uh, anecdotes or, or lessons from from uh, the MBA program? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, oh, ab- absolutely. And in the Mythical Man Month is is uh, you know I think in a very 1950s way of thinking, you know, yeah, it, it might seem to be attractive at first. I mean, really, really, the problem. I would say that the key place where that idea and that logic breaks down is when you encounter complexity and uh, when you're doing something that's not a rote repetitive task that uh, you don't know yet how you're going to solve it. Um, it. It tremendously breaks down in you know multi-organizational development settings. Uh, I'm working on one project right now between several different uh, national labs uh, across, you know, several different time zones and with lots of different people and different cultural priorities and perceptions of goodness and perceptions of risk. And, um, you know, I think, I think that's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's fertile ground for, uh, you know, the unknown is, is what kills you in development. And, you know, because you, you can't have envisioned how you're going to solve these pieces of technical debt, um, you know, it's hard. It's hard to actually pre-visualize what any given solution is going to look like. So, one of the questions, you know, when I talk to people about this idea of applying an economic criteria to product development, people are like, "Okay, that sounds great. You know, I can kind of see it, but like, how do you actually do it?" And, um, and and I would say the place you start if you actually want to implement roll out a strategy like this is. You use uh, an idea from uh, the field of psychometrics, which is the field of studying sort of uh, human psychology and uh, behavior and sort of human perception of the world around us. So, so basically, there's this, there's this idea of a just noticeable difference, a JND. And what it means is to a subjective human, did you notice that something was different or not? And so there's, there's lots of things. So let's, you know, pick on the example of a car a second ago, you know, whatever the top speed of a BMW is, let's say it's 142 miles an hour. I don't know what it is, but I'm just making it up. Mm. Would you as a consumer notice if that was 140? And you probably wouldn't notice. It probably wouldn't change whether or not you bought that car. And so let's drop it a little bit more. You know, would you notice if it was 125? And then it's like, well, you know, a Toyota can probably, you know, get itself over 100. So, you know, you probably would start to notice at 125. And so if you can back out, you know, a measuring of goodness, in this case, we're picking on speed, and, and you can identify some sort of just noticeable difference to a user, which is really the measuring of goodness in terms of 
new product development of did your user notice any difference in the, in the functional outcome of your product? What you can then do is you can decompose every engineering parameter relative to that. So for example, if you're trying to figure out uh, an A-B test on which set of tires to put on, does it change the, you know, uh, the top speed the car can go? Does it change its handling at that top speed? If no, you actually have free space to play there. The type of oil you put in it, does it change the top speed? Oh, if not, well now you actually have you know, room to make a choice there. Uh, you know, if you make the car you know, a little bit heavier, does it slow down the top speed of the car? And it's like, okay, well, I can make the car, you know, 60 pounds heavier before I incur the just noticeable difference of speed. Whereas, uh, you know, there might be other dimensions such as, you know, let's say aerodynamics. If I change the shape of the hood, you know, I might uh, have a different penalty in units of ballistic coefficient of the aerodynamics of the car versus pounds and weight. And all those things in different units map back onto the common unit set of speed. And so the idea is, now that we've I've identified a just noticeable difference across all of these measurands, and I now have a mapping back to the global figure of merit, you know, in this case, I'm picking on speed, uh, but it you know, could be lots of other things. And in the product world, it'd be things like, you know, uh, uh, some smell. function set for a user or something like that. Yeah, either the smell of the car. And if you have the way to make that mapping, you now have a rational way to make trades. Because what you can do is you can identify which variables are slack in the system and which ones actually need some more resources. And so, you know, if, if you really need to make the car actually go faster than 140 miles per hour, you now know where can I get the biggest return on investment as well. Uh, so it helps you both from a risk management perspective, it helps you from a product improvement perspective. And then if you think about this in terms of schedule, just play this out over time. And uh, now you can identify, well, hey, this component you know, is late or is behind in its development cycle. You actually have a way of gauging how big of a problem that is. You can do better resource allocation um, and you can then dollarize those things to meet an, another abstract dimension, such as schedule. And so, uh, again, it's this idea of Pareto efficiency of if I can make any of these things better without making something else worse, that means I'm not at the Pareto efficient frontier. And so it's this really neat criteria leveraged from economics and psychological testing uh, that is, I think, really useful in the product development world and in the engineering setting. That, that's a very eloquent way of putting it. I, yeah. I, <laughs> I think, uh, I think one, of, one of the realities out there in the job market for a lot of people, uh, perhaps specifically in software engineering, but definitely true of all other areas of engineering, is uh, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty about what is the JND for, for schedule, uh, mm -hmm. because schedule is a very, very noticeable difference uh, everyone's got a clock. <laughs> yeah, Every, yeah. Everyone knows knows what the the estimated delivery date is in in most cases. Right. Uh, you you basically can't be an engineer without uh, outside stakeholders asking you to make estimates about your schedule. Right. Uh, there there's a reality that no no one can truly get away with a schedule free <laughs> engineering process. Exactly. Uh, 
exactly. No, no better example of this than than existential engineering problems like the race for the nuclear bomb, or mm. perhaps uh, agricultural inventions uh, that revolve around the seasons and needing perhaps to irrigate, build irrigation, or or build transportation. Uh, but yeah, schedule is such an interesting uh, trade-off. To your point about uh, the just noticeable differences and and the trade-offs you can make to to reach uh, to accommodate a schedule, if that is the key uh, success metric. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. And and you know if if we're making good engineering and project management decisions on a day-to-day basis, really we should be we should be doing very careful measurement around what are the big levers and what are, what are, what things are in the noise that we kind of shouldn't be worrying about and 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 that's the beauty of having some framework at least to trade these things one against the other because there's always going to be resource contention you know and i i can't claim to you know solve that for people but i i would offer that you know the the nice thing about this framework as a as a product development strategy is it it lets you trade A versus B versus C, and you know once you you know have now um, quantified the impact of either a little bit more success or a little bit you know less success in any of those dimensions, you know resource allocation starts to become more tractable, and and it tends to look less like just anxiety, <laughs> and <laughs> and I think I think everybody in the engineering process benefits. Definitely, definitely. I, I, I think to your point earlier about uh, get, about getting that job experience, uh, everyone needs a little bit of exposure to anxiety <laughs> to 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 really build their uh, build their experiences as an engineer. Yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely. There's growth there. So, definitely. Thank you for joining us, Sean. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was great to chat with you, Max. Absolutely. Hope to have you on again sometime soon. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye bye.